When Michael Schumacher moved from Benetton to Ferrari for 1996, nobody could have predicted the level of dominance it would eventually lead to in the early 2000s. On this episode of Bring Back V10s, we're revisiting how this move came together, the other offers Schumacher turned down, and the implications his decision had on the rest of the F1 driver market at a time when he was the hottest commodity on the grid. I'm Glenn Freeman, and joining me for this look back into one of the defining storylines of the V10 era our XF1 driver and Sky Sports expert, Karun Chanduk, and our website editor at the race, Matt Beer. Now, Karun, welcome to your first appearance of Series 4, and hopefully not your last. You know how this works by now, so when you think back to Schumacher signing for Ferrari in the summer of 1995, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Probably surprise. You know, this was a guy who just won his first World Championship with Benetton. He was, at that stage really well on course for his way uh, on his way to win the 95 championship before the end of the season um so you know why leave that and this was a team that seemed built around him right none of the teammates really were challenging him so i guess it it, it was surprise um was probably my first reaction but as we said you know at that point none of us would have realized the level of domination to come yeah and we'll get into the uh the reason the supposed reason that Michael had had enough at Benetton quite early on in this episode. But Matt, welcome along as well to uh, to Series 4. Where does your mind wander to first with this topic? Money. Massive amounts of money. Because <laughs> so much of the coverage back then was about this, what seemed at the time like a crazy salary he was being paid compared to everybody else. When you look at the numbers now, it really doesn't feel like that at all, especially given what he went on to achieve. But um, yeah, as a, as a teenage fan back then, that was the... That was the, the thing that really stuck in my mind. It's amazing how public uh, all the information seemed to uh, come out around uh, salaries and that sort of thing. So we'll have plenty of numbers for you as we go through this episode, not just on what Schumacher was earning, but on some of the other drivers as well. Before we get going, remember you can get in touch with us and submit questions for our series finale about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005 by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. And you can now email us too. Uh, send your emails to bringbackv10s at the-race.com. And if you like the sound of getting early access to our latest episodes and listening to them ad-free, then check out the Race Members Club. You can find out more, including all the other benefits you can unlock by going to the-race.com forward slash members club. But now let's get into how Michael Schumacher left Benetton for Ferrari. And we're going all the way back to January 1995, because at this point it was being reported in parts of the media that Schumacher had been snapped up by McLaren and Mercedes for 1996. But he brushed that off, saying it doesn't make sense to have signed a contract already. I would rather wait until the end of the year to see how the others are performing. Now, Karun, that's that's obviously Schumacher just trying to brush the story off. But does an answer like that where he says, I'm going to wait as long as I want to, does that hint that he already knew in January 95 that the entire F1 driver market revolved around him effectively? I think that's probably a fair comment. And it did. You know, to be fair, by that stage, Senna was gone. There wasn't another world champion on the grid. Mansell wasn't coming back, uh, although then he eventually did come back at McLaren. But at that stage in January, it was still, you know, DC had just signed for Williams. And, um, and Michael... I had this incredible inner confidence and inner belief, didn't he, that he was 
he was supremely the best driver on the grid by a long margin. And actually, to be fair, in the mid-90s, he was. He was the best driver in Formula One without question. And, and actually, you know, the, there was there was a gap, I think. There was a clear few tenths, especially when you look at his, his ability to do it lap after lap in the race. Um, you know, Bernie Eccleston said it, didn't he? Michael was worth 30 seconds in the race. And... So he knew that, and I'm sure he had people like Billy Weber telling him that as well. So he held all the cards. Every team, literally literally every team on the grid would have done anything to have Michael in the car for the right price that they could afford. And I think as well, he would have wanted at that stage to try to play down this McLaren thing because looking back at the time, the amount that everyone was convinced he would definitely reunite with Mercedes once Mercedes was with a serious F1 team, it was it was the dominant driver market story for a while in, in the early to mid nineties. So it was in Schumacher's interest to go. No, everyone thinks I'm definitely going to be back in a in a Mercedes powered car, given the way they've supported my career up to this point. But actually, no, come shopping for me. I, I'm more available than that. He got there in the end, didn't he? He ended up in a Mercedes. It just took a bit longer uh, than we all expected. But let's answer that key question of why he was trying to get out of Benetton just after having won his first world championship with them. And then when it became clear early in 95 that he was probably going to have a good chance of winning a second one. We can trace this desire to leave back to 1993 when Michael felt deceived and let down by Benetton. This story is incredible, but very similar versions of it have been told by Ross Braun and Eddie Jordan in their books. So the fact that those two stories add up means that I think we can place quite a lot of trust in these events that we're about to detail. So in the early 90s, Schumacher had a clause in his contract at Benetton that no teammate could be paid more than him unless it was Alain Prost, Ayrton Senna or Nigel Mansell. And stop for a moment just to imagine any of them as Michael Schumacher's teammate. Wow. Uh, But in 1993, Schumacher got a pay rise to $2 million. But what he didn't realise at the time was Ricardo Patrese was coming in from Williams on $3 million a portion of which was being paid directly to Patrese by a team sponsor. Patrese then fell out with Flavio Briatore mid-season, and in the end they agreed that the second year of his contract for 1994 would be void. Patrese went and talked to McLaren about 1994, and when he told Ron Dennis he was on £3 at Benetton, Ron knew about the Schumacher clause and that Schumacher was being paid less. So Ron told Schumacher's camp, that Patrese was on more money in the hope that he could then use that to steal Schumacher from McLaren. But Schumacher's representatives had other ideas. They offered Patrese a million dollars just for a copy of his Benetton contract, which he obviously agreed to. They went straight to Briatore, who understandably panicked and quickly offered Schumacher a much better deal. Eddie Jordan found this very amusing. He obviously enjoyed seeing Ron lose out, having started the, the domino effect. But Eddie added, the really clever part was the deal to pay $1 million to Patrese just for a piece of paper and come away with a huge net profit from the new Benetton deal. So Matt, what do you make of that outrageous story? And given that that Schumacher clause existed already, what was Flavio doing? Like, was, This was surely an unnecessary risk in the first place by bringing Patrese in on more money. I love this story, and especially the fact I had no idea this happened until I, I got into your... 27 pages of research notes for this episode and and found it in there. I was like, wow. The the, the thing is, looking at it in hindsight, you'd think, why was Patrese ever on more money than Schumacher? But the thing is, everything moved so fast around Schumacher's rise at that point. 
Late 91, he was relatively unknown in F1. Then he makes his explosive debut, gets snapped up by Benetton. 92 is impressive, but it's sketchy in places. There's mistakes in there. It's late that season before he wins a race. And okay, Patrese is being dominated by Mansell at Williams, but... You know, he was that 91 92 is still, you know, Patrese's heyday. So Flavio's coming in for, for a Williams driver with all that Williams experience and expertise. A safe pair of hands who's proved he can take on Mansell, the reigning world champion in the right circumstances. And okay, Schumacher's this incredible talent, but probably when that deal's being done, Flavio's not even really had a full season of, of seeing what Schumacher can do. So the, the deception part of it is a little bit cheeky and a little bit Flavio, but the looking. If you put your brain back into mid-1992, you can see the logic of why he would work hard to get Patrese. It's just by the start of 94 when Schumacher's destroyed Patrese and Patrese's on his way out of F1 and Schumacher's off to become world champion. Then it seems completely ludicrous that that ever happened. Well, I think they, Flavio got it in his head, didn't he, that Patrese was going to come with all of this secret information from Williams. I mean, Williams, the 92 car, one of the most dominant cars in, in F1 history. And... I think Flavio, I read somewhere more recently, he says he's regretted swapping Brundle out for Patrese because actually in hindsight, Martin was a closer you know, match for Schumacher than frankly, Patrese or Verstappen or Leto or Johnny were <laughs> over the next few years. You know, okay, you could argue that was Michael's first full season in 92, et cetera, et cetera. But I think I, I'm, I'm sure I've seen Flavio saying that he regretted it, that swap actually. Yeah, I think um, and part of the reason for that is he just said that uh, at that in 92, they didn't realise how good Michael was. So they perhaps didn't benchmark Martin fairly enough. And yeah, I think if you go back and look at Brundle's 92 season, it, it does stack up pretty well. In hindsight, it's no good for Martin. It doesn't put him back in a Benetton for the, for the mid-90s. But Ross Braun, uh, like I say, he told this story as well, not in quite as much detail as Eddie Jordan, but he's... He's sceptical about this being the real reason Schumacher wanted to leave. When he asked Michael why he was leaving, uh, this is what Schumacher told him. He said the Patrese money issue was the reason. Um, and he said that Michael felt he had been screwed. But uh, Ross suggests in his book uh, that may have been an easy excuse to move on because he thinks Schumacher had itchy feet by then to go somewhere else. Karun, as a... As a racing driver and as someone embedded in Formula One for so long, can you understand that despite how well things were going at Benetton, Schumacher might think that he'd gone as far as he could with that team? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's, it's hard to judge unless you're on the inside. But I think he... It, it, it's a funny one. I think he, he probably looked at it and thought, 95, we've got the Renault engines now. We've dominated it. But Williams have also had a bit of a shocker. You know, they, they haven't maximized. They had a car that was on pole for 12 out of 17 races in 95, but between reliability and driver error, they didn't score that many points or as many points as they should have done in 95. So he probably looked at it and said, the big picture, are Benetton in a situation where year after year, they're going to have the resource and, and the, you know, the, the mass of... Um, you know, to build this critical mass that they need to have a period of domination. And, and clearly he judged that they didn't. Now, only he can really, uh, maybe Billy Weber can say really why they didn't believe that to be the case because, you know, they were winning everything, weren't they? Bennington were Constructors World Champions in 95 and, and stuff like that. Um, but ultimately, I guess, you know, Ferrari, 
at that time with their own test track with and the ability to be testing from dawn till dusk etc etc you know that there's a ton of resources there that no other team had at that stage in the 90s and could use at that stage so i think ultimately that was that was attractive to them um why he didn't go to mclaren is an interesting one isn't it because i read the story of how um uh, his basically billy weber thought when he, they went to ferrari they have much more opportunity commercially to do other things so beyond just the big ticket salary that matt's already talked about um i think ferrari offered them the chance to do the personal deals for his his cap and all these other sort of sponsorship deals and merchandise and all these things which we know ron was particularly um you know constrained about when it came to the driver contract so i uh, i think that was a big reason for billy weber to to swing the deal towards ferrari because he saw much more commercial opportunity for them yeah we'll get into that and how the the retainer offers stacked up a little bit later as 1995 got going then rumors were increasing that schumacher was asking for more than 20 million dollars a year ferrari mclaren and williams were all believed to be interested in him but early in the year ferrari were particularly vocal in playing down any willingness to pay that sort of money ferrari president luca di montezemolo called the figures being mentioned totally crazy he said ferrari cannot pay as much money as that even for schumacher and team boss john todd said with all the top driver contracts expiring at the same time, it's logical that there will be changes, but not at any price. Already by this stage, there was no suggestion really that Benetton could win the battle to retain Schumacher's services. And on the subject of big salaries, Britori said signing a young driver was like buying a little lion. He's cute and everybody loves him, but when he grows up, he eats you. And uh, Flavio joked that uh, Benetton, Williams, Ferrari and McLaren should all have dinner together and fix the price any of them are willing to pay their drivers. Bernie Eccleston waded in on this, as we briefly mentioned earlier. Firstly, he said Schumacher wasn't worth the sort of money Ayrton Senna used to get because Senna was a superstar in the car and out of it. But he did say Schumacher was probably worth 30 seconds over a race distance and that teams had to think about how much it would cost to find that amount of time in their car. So Matt, looking purely at the figures that are being talked about, obviously Ferrari are saying at this stage, we're not interested in paying that sort of money. Was Michael Schumacher worth upwards of $20 million by the middle of 1995? Yes, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, as 95 went on, it was clearer and clearer that the, that he was just such a class apart from everybody else. We'd, we'd come out of this era with a bunch of relatively evenly matched superstars with different strengths across the kind of Senna Mansell Prost gang. And now for, you know, for the various tragic and non-tragic reasons, they weren't around anymore. And there was just this gulf from Schumacher to everybody else. And you could, you could look at Hakkinen, who was relatively unproven at that point. You could look at Hill and kind of hope he might develop more, but always have the feeling that he was benefiting a lot from being in the best car compared to Schumacher. Um, no, if, Okay, that was a. I'm trying to think what everybody else was on at that point. I think it was mostly single single figure millions rather than teens millions. So it was a, it was a huge jump being talked about. But Bernie was absolutely right. Schumacher really was that much faster over a race distance, reliably than anybody else, week in week out. And I do I do see where Bernie was coming from with the I'd like a bit more personality, like Senna used to offer as well. Element, but for a team that wanted to win, yeah, it was get him in at any cost. By that point, ninety five was such compelling evidence. And also for Ferrari, when you looked at the market at that stage, you know, they'd had Berger and Lazy who were in that 
second rung of drivers alongside Damon and DC and Johnny. You know, there's a whole load of drivers there. But in Ferrari's situation, Michael was the only person who was going to drag them back to World Championship glory, unquestionably at that point. So from Ferrari's standpoint, if Jean Todd and Montezemolo really wanted to, to bring them back up, he was the only choice. Literally the only choice. Yeah, he was as close as you could get, I think, to a, to a sure thing in F1 at the time. Now, by the British Grand Prix in July, things really went into overdrive in the F1 silly season. Schumacher's manager, who we've mentioned a couple of times, Billy Weber, dropped the firmest hints yet that Schumacher was leaving Benetton, uh, saying, if Michael was going to leave, it wouldn't be good for morale, motivation or his title defence if that decision was known too early. My job is to get him in the best possible decision a position, but he will decide. I cannot sign his contract for him, but I think he would look quite nice in red. I initially read that as, okay, so that was when they said he was going to Ferrari, but of course McLaren had red overalls at the time as well, so keeping his options open. All this talk of Schumacher's massive salary created immediate ripple effects elsewhere in the driver market. As we heard from Todd earlier, pretty much everybody at the front, their contracts were up at this point. And, uh, the Times quoted a solicitor representing Damon Hill, who wasn't named, but I assume would be Michael Breen, who did all of his negotiating for him. And he was already pushing for more money from Williams, saying Damon's next deal uh, will be a big one. And the rules have changed for Williams. Benetton has Renault engines and every bit as good a car. Ferrari has closed the gap and Williams can no longer say we are giving you the best car and therefore we do not need to pay you as much. Kareem, was that an inevitable domino effect that if, if Schumacher's raising the top tier of salaries, everybody else underneath is going to want to climb the ladder as well? Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, they, they look at it and go, well, OK, he is the reigning world champion and he's leading the world championship, so he's worth that much. But I'm not that far behind him, so I think I should be worth just this much less, not, not you know, 40% of his salary or something that, that effectively they were all on. And... Um, I think ultimately, though, people are only worth what other people are willing to pay them. It's like it's like buying a house, isn't it? You know, I could market my house for five million quid, but nobody's going to pay five million quid for it. And ultimately, it's only worth what somebody will pay. And Ferrari were willing to pay 20 million for Michael Schumacher and not willing to pay that for anyone else. And no one else was either. So the drivers can all think what, you know, drivers can always think whatever they want about their own worth. But... The teams dictate the market value ultimately, and also, you know, for for Damon and his people, they're in the, they're in a much tougher position of trying to negotiate with Williams rather than anybody else. You know, okay, Williams had just gone through signing uh, Mansell, then Prost, then Senna in quick succession, so they'd had a little dalliance with paying big money for established superstars. But really, Williams's whole way forever was build a great car, pluck someone out of the midfield, stick them in it, watch them beat everyone. And, you know, now Williams have built a great car. They've got a guy they'd plucked out of a very bad Brabham and someone they brought in from Formula 3000 who were massively cheaper than probably a lot of the drivers on the grid. And they, they were thinking that should be a package to win the World Championship because their car was so good. So, and the fact Damon at that point wasn't winning the World Championship and it didn't put him in a very strong negotiating position either. One thing that did seem clear from very early in this whole saga was that if Schumacher did go to Ferrari, Jean Alesi wouldn't be his teammate. Alessi told the French media very early in the year that he didn't think he could work with Schumacher. And by July, when all of this was kicking off, things really broke down between Alessi and Ferrari. 
Montezemolo told the Italian newspaper La Stampa, Alessi has made it very clear that Schumacher's presence is not compatible with his. Alessi has done well for us, but I told him to get off his chest whatever is bothering him. It's important not to cry about treachery and not to behave like a little baby. Jean Tot followed up on this, firstly to confirm that those quotes were pretty much accurate, but he then took a more measured view of the situation, saying, Alessi is up and down. One day the relationship is fantastic, the next it's a bit more difficult. Seven or eight drivers have contracts up, Ferrari is talking to them, and Alessi is talking with other teams. For me, that seems normal. Karun, if we think back, 95 was probably the peak of Alessi's reputation in F1. Why do you think he was so worried about having Schumacher as a teammate? I'm going to disagree with you there because I think 1990 was the peak of Alessi's reputation in F1. I mean, you know, he arrived with that bang, didn't he? Great result of Paul Ricard, first time out in the Tyrrell. Then 1990 at Phoenix, incredible race. Um, and it didn't really happen for him at Ferrari. You know, he, he went there and, okay, the 91, 92 and 93 cars are all dogs. But he got beaten by Prost comprehensively in 91. And, um, you know, it, it, I think the shine had gone off him a little bit. He was, he had this, he, he was a mercurial driver, wasn't he? He had these incredible highs. I mean, think of those races in 94, leading in Monza after taking pole position. And then um, I think Silverstone he led as well when the wheel bearing failed in 94. Then 95, again, you know, has a very competitive races. Brilliant driver, the Nürburgring on slicks in the damp eventually beaten by Michael, of course. But, but then there were also some incredible lows. And ultimately, you know, when you look at the World Championship battle, he didn't really finish that much higher up than Gerhard. I get it. At that time, the reliability wasn't what it is today. And there were all sorts of other factors. Uh, and he was unlucky on occasion. But after Phoenix 1990, if you told me John Alesi would win one Grand Prix in his entire career, you know, I would have said you're an idiot. But that he was just one of these people. And I think as Todd very rightly say said, there's just too many highs and lows. And and for an Italian team like Ferrari, which is driven by so much passion and emotion, it didn't need a passionate and emotional um, French Sicilian in, in the cockpit, you know, it needed a, a a German with a metronomic work ethic who was who was just going to deliver every single lap that you put him in the car, whether it was practice, qualifying, or a winter test in Mugello, uh, let alone the Grand Prix. So they they needed they needed Michael, uh, frankly. Which is why the the swap deal that turned, that ended up happening seemed to make sense because that explosive uh, French Sicilian talent needed a logical environment like a kind of Ross Braun environment, and obviously, it went horrendously wrong after that. But um, I would say the actual peak of John Lace's career was in 1995, and it was for about 10 minutes, and it was the first dozen or so laps at Suzuka with getting a jump start penalty, coming back from outside the top 10, slicks in the wet, getting right onto Schumacher's tail, <laughs> and I think the it wasn't his fault, was it? I think the engine blew up at that point. But that was the absolute peak of a lacy for me, followed two weeks later by a really rubbish shunt with Schumacher in Adelaide. Um, it was terrible, that shunt, wasn't it? The hairpin was awful. What, it was pointless. <laughs> what was the thinking behind it? How was, yeah, what was that ever going to achieve? Um, yeah, so I, I, could, I, could see why she, I could see why Lacey didn't fancy the challenge of Schumacher in the same car and the same environment because you couldn't really get two more opposite, um, opposite drivers and there was only really one way that was going to go. 
we could just turn this into a, an Alacy 1995 episode now because there, there are so many things to pick up on there. Obviously, the high point of the early part of the Nurburgring race was when he was at his best, but then the fact that he managed to ship 30 seconds twice in the second half of the race to Schumacher. Um, and just to mention the Adelaide thing, it's something that I don't think has made it into into our running order here, but there's a comment from Irvine when he drives Alacy's car for the first time at the end of the year. And he said they they, they took it, uh, they, they put it um, on the pit lane in Fiorano and they said, look, go out and, and just try it. But Alacy has basically said it's undrivable, so tell us how to fix it. And Irvine said it was beautiful to drive and he didn't know what Alacy was talking about. So, yeah, Alacy and Ferrari, um, explosive uh, to the very end. But that 95 Ferrari, I think, was actually probably a very good car. Um, you know, Jean Barnard, I think, talked about it and... Who was the engineer? It was an engineer, wasn't it? Who ran Michael and Estoril, who did an interview as well. Uh, I can't remember who it was. And said, when Michael rocked up in Estoril to drive the Ferrari for the first time at the end of 95, they just not, could not believe how quick he was. They just couldn't believe how quick the lap times were. Um, and, and Michael himself said he thought he could have won the World Championship in that Ferrari. So, and, and, and Matt, You've hit the nail on the head. You know, you just look at the swap that happened between Michael and then Gerhard and Jean going to Benetton. You know, that was the beginning of the slump for Benetton, wasn't it? It took them years to come back. Really, it took till Fernando for them to come back and start winning again. That Endstone team having changed ownership a few times along the way. Um, and it just shows, yes, you know, you could employ the Frank Williams policy of drivers are glorified employees and part of the team. Um, but especially in that era, less so today, I think, but certainly in that era and going and going before that era, drivers made a difference. And, and drivers like Michael made a difference. And it was in early August that the Ferrari deal was made official for Schumacher and he was reported to be earning $25 million a year. Schumacher said he was giving himself one year to adapt to life at Ferrari and then fight for the title in '97. He addressed the money side of things, saying money is important as I want to feel I'm being paid what I'm worth. If the difference is not so big between one team or another, then it does help you to decide. But first of all, I look for performance. I would not have joined Ferrari if I did not think uh, I could win races or the title. Ron Dennis wasn't impressed with missing out on Schumacher and he said, you don't need to be Einstein to look at the performance of various teams and realise that Schumacher driving for Ferrari isn't logical if winning is the objective. Now, let's not forget how bad McLaren were in 1995 when we digest that comment. And it is widely believed that McLaren offered a higher retainer than Ferrari, but as Karun mentioned, nowhere near as much flexibility in terms of personal commercial deals and merchandising, which was where Schumacher's management saw an opportunity to make big money. And uh, Flavio Briatore gave a quote that we've pretty much already heard uh, from Karun as well. Uh, Flavio said, no way would I pay that much for a driver, but if someone pays it, then it's not too much. If you put a house on the market for a certain price and it sells, it means it was the correct price. But Matt, let's look at that Ron Dennis comment. Is that just sour grapes because he was the jilted party in all this? It's sour grapes for that reason, and because in this period, Ron's got a massive chip on his shoulder about how bad McLaren has been since roughly 1991. You know, he's had <laughs> he's had this period of not just dominating on track, but dominating negotiations, having by far the best driver with him in Senna. 
and and now he's got this laughable, ugly car trudging around in the midfield, sometimes behind Pacifics in the wet, with Mark Blundell in one of them, which seems like a bizarre thing to have happened even now. No offence to Mark, but two years earlier, would you would you predict him in the McLaren? Definitely not. Um, no, she, at this point, McLaren and Ron Dennis are not massively relevant at the front of Formula One. W- weirdly, I remember I, I'd, I'd got into F1 properly in 1994. It had been a passing interest. In 94, I got obsessed. And I remember around this time when the first rumours of Renault pulling out came along, someone in a column in a magazine wrote, this will mean it's McLaren versus Ferrari for the title again. And I thought, no way, obviously not. Not those two. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. But, but as a newcomer to the sport in 94, 95, that was how bad McLaren looked to me. So, yeah, that was, that's the world Ron Dennis was operating in in reality. But in his head, he was still seeing himself as the person who could do the best deal, sign the best drivers and was about to dominate again. Of course, the, the irony was he actually did dominate again at the end of the decade, but and didn't even need Schumacher to do it. Well, they didn't dominate though towards the end of the decade, I suppose. And they they dominated for the first part of '98. <laughs> it was a very fast and car. <laughs> they dominated oh. on pace. They just didn't quite dominate on it was points. A very fast car. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that. <laughs> Beyond the money side, Schumacher was very clear about the big motivating factor of going to Ferrari, and that was the idea of building a team up rather than hopping straight into the best car. Schumacher and Frank Williams have admitted that they talked around this time, but they were miles apart on money, as we've perhaps hinted at already. Uh, Frank has said in the past, the desire was serious, but we never paid a driver the kind of sums they were asking. In 1995, Schumacher said, I had discussions with Williams, but Frank prefers to spend money on the technical side rather than the driver. If I drove the Williams, people would expect me to win every race. There are lots of drivers who can win in this car, but there are not a lot of drivers that can win in a Ferrari. For a long time, I have felt that I don't want to be in the best car. I want to have the situation where I can develop with a team up to a standard. That's not to say Schumacher didn't need some convincing about uh, going to Ferrari. In James Allen's book about Schumacher called The Edge of Greatness, Michael's manager, Billy Weber, said, I had difficulty getting the idea across, persuading him that Ferrari could be a good partner for us. He saw things a bit differently and said, do you know that when I drive up behind them, they are easier to overtake than almost anybody else? Are you sure this is the right move for us? And uh, Vili went on to say, it would have been easy to go to McLaren, but after he'd thought it over, he saw simply that there was this incredible amount of potential lying dormant in this Ferrari team. Karun, can you think of many drivers who would choose a long-term project over jumping in the best car there and then if it was offered to them? No, um, quite simply. I mean, drivers want to win here and now. They want to win at every given opportunity. Um, obviously, Lewis did it with with Mercedes. Um, you know, and that worked out brilliantly for him. But there's there's very few other drivers on there when you look back at history that that decided to, especially step away from a car that they were leading the world championship in to go somewhere else. That, you know, it very rarely happens. I mean, apart from a, a whole bunch of Williams drivers who left the team after winning the World Championship. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that you know, PK left Williams, but he, to go to Lotus, and I'm sure there was a bit of PR spiel that he was there to rebuild Lotus back to glory days, but he went for the money. In, and he knew that Williams was going to have Judd engines and not Hondas, so he went for the Honda engine. Um, but, yeah, I can't think of many other drivers who leave a team that they're leading the world championship in to go to someone else who they think they're going to rebuild in the long term. Um, 
no, I can't genuine. I mean, even Lewis, right? The twenty twelve, it was Red Bull and Vettel, who were you know who were really there. Okay, Mercedes were winning. Sorry, McLaren were winning races, but it was really Fernando versus Sebastian in twenty twelve. Lewis was sort of an outside championship battler at that point. So no, I can't. I genuinely can't think of anyone else. And the thing that makes it more remarkable is that not only did he leave the team he was going to win the world championship with, but he turned down the chance to drive the car that everybody thought was arguably faster. So an incredible decision that obviously did pay off as as we will constantly revisit through this series because it's kind of impossible to cover the V10 era of Formula One and ignore the successes of Michael Schumacher and Ferrari. But who would be in the other Ferrari then? Uh, we know it won't be Alacy. We've covered that already. And following Schumacher's announcement, Alacy was quickly confirmed at Benetton saying that while Ferrari kept him in the dark about Schumacher, Briatori told him what was going on and had approached him back in April about coming over to Benetton. Berger was in the other Ferrari. He'd had an offer on the table from Ferrari to re-sign since May, but by August he was still stalling over signing it. Schumacher made it very clear that his contract made him the number one at Ferrari, saying, To win races and championships, you have to concentrate on just one. Benetton understood this quite well and it has paid off. There cannot be two number ones because only one driver can win the championship. But Berger said Schumacher's comments were contrary to the deal he'd been offered. He said, I have been in contact with Jean Todt every day and he has assured me of equal status and material. Ferrari will not change its policy. That is in my contract. Now, Matt, we know in the end Berger doesn't sign that contract and we'll come to why in a moment. But how do you think a Schumacher Berger lineup would have played out at Ferrari? Really well, actually. Um, yeah, I think at the time I remember thinking that would be the ideal balance of relatively young superstar coming in, well established but not at all slow driver who knows the team. Perfect combo to drive it forward. Obviously, there were a million reasons, that, like you say, we'll get on to a minute. Berger didn't fancy that, but I think on paper that would have actually been quite decent it would have required Schumacher to get his head around having a very different type of teammate to any he'd had up to that point and and would do again though yeah I I, I guess Berger had the experience didn't he of, of the years alongside Senna but maybe at this point in his career he didn't want didn't want to be quite so officially a number two again but looking at Benetton the team's second driver at this point was Johnny Herbert and he said he was hopeful of staying on for another year to be a Lacey's teammate but that suddenly looked in jeopardy when Tom Walkinshaw was highly critical of Herbert in public. Walkinshaw said, Johnny does not seem to want to apply himself to winning races at the top level. He has a lot of talent. He can certainly string one lap together, but I don't think he knows how he does it. And I don't think he is really interested in finding out. If he is not with Benetton next year, it will be his own fault. We have spent hours trying to get him to understand what is required from a top line driver. If he doesn't want to pick it up and run with it, there is nothing more you can do for him. Herbert didn't take that lying down, saying he was never given a fair crack of the whip at Benetton. And he said, I've never been able to show my full potential. My problem was going too quickly the first time I tested. That worried Michael. I always knew it was going to be difficult, but I never expected it to be such an uphill struggle. Briatore waded in at that point, saying, I don't tell Johnny how to drive, and I don't expect him to tell me how to run a team. Karun, how bad must things have got behind the scenes for a team and driver to suddenly play this dispute out in public? Well, I mean, it's funny, even when you talk to Johnny today, 
he's he's been scarred by that year. You know, he's he's genuinely been uh, for a guy who's uh, you know been at death's door and back. Um, I sometimes think a year with Flavio and <laughs> alongside Michael and that Benetton team has scarred him more than anything else. Um, you know, he he genuinely hated that whole, that whole environment and that team, and um, still to this day, you know believes he wasn't given a fair crack at it. But ultimately, there's I'm sure there's two sides to every story, right? Um, you know, the the team, judging by Tom Okichel's comments there, clearly believe that they did give Johnny every opportunity to do it. And I, I suspect there's an element of truth somewhere in the middle uh, of both sides of that argument, isn't there? You know, when you look at it objectively. The reality is from, you know, in terms of perception and looking from the outside, it wasn't great for Johnny, you know, there's, Michael was unquestionably quicker than, than him on, on every given occasion. And, um, you know, I'm sure it was tough, you know, not having, when you, when you rock up as a driver and you're suddenly told you can't look at your teammates data, but he's going to look at yours and, um, you know, straight away you're on the back foot psychologically and straight away you're, you're, you're thinking, well, hang on. What am I doing here? Why am I even here? Um, and uh, it, it, that, that could not have been an easy environment for him. And, you know, for, for Johnny, think about it. He'd, he'd, he'd spent the first few years of, F, of his F1 career at Lotus, sort of floundering around. He did, okay, yeah, the Benetton in 89, but sort of floundering around in midfield to, to mid to second half of the grid teams. And suddenly, he, he, you know, golden ticket. He'd been shoehorned into this Benetton in Adelaide 94. Um, got the drive for 95. Uh, sorry, it was Suzuka 94, wasn't it? He got the, the Benetton for the last two races in 94. And then he's there in the, in the top team. And it hasn't worked out for, for him. For And, you know, so psychologically, I think that was a, a really, really tough situation for him. And clearly the team didn't believe that... Um, they had done anything wrong, which is why they replaced him with Alesi and Boga. <laughs> and Herbert said in his book that this this war of words broke out because he'd found out secondhand that Berger was taking his seat, but nobody from Benetton had told him about it. Johnny did explain those early season problems behind the scenes in more detail in his book as well. He said after being close to Schumacher's pace in practice in Argentina for the second race of the year, Schumacher came up to him at their hotel and said, Johnny... There are things I do with my driving that I do not want you to see. And at the same time, there will be things about your driving that you will not want me to see. From now on, I don't want you to see my data. Herbert said he was surprised by this, but that surprise turned to shock when the following day, Ross Braun confirmed that Briatore had approved Schumacher's request and Schumacher would still be allowed to see Herbert's data, as we mentioned just then. Now, Johnny did a column for Autosport magazine after his Italian Grand Prix win in September 95. And there he said he decided to speak out a few weeks earlier because he felt he had to tell his side of the story. But in his book, years later, he said, the mistake I made was going public with my fears. That, I realise now, did me quite a lot of damage within the sport. I should have kept my gob shut. I wanted people to know that I was not being treated as equal, but it backfired on me and I just looked like a bit of a sore loser. The Schumacher-Herbert affair left a pretty bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. I was to blame for some of that, and I hold my hands up. If I'd known how I was going to be treated, I wouldn't have accepted the drive, 
and would have asked to stay on at Ligier, where obviously Johnny did one race uh, before he went to Benetton, which we talked about in our Lotus 94 episode where Johnny joined us. And that's, that's a, a brilliant episode. And I think Briatore gets a couple of mentions in that as well, which shows just how much damage that's done. As Karun mentioned, uh, Johnny finished this little uh, segment by saying, I was desperate to win races and that had been my downfall. So Karun, we've already talked about the damage that this has done and the long lasting effect it's had on Johnny. Can you in any way from either from talking to him or from your own experiences, can you relate to the idea of rather being in a midfield team that's never going to win rather than being in a front running car? Like, you know, the importance of balancing up happiness and competitiveness. I can't, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> it, it is, yeah, it's really tough. And I, I wonder, you know, sometimes I look at it, the approach, right? We, we see it and we're talking about it currently in, in 2021. You know, you look at, you look at Bottas versus Perez, for example, and in many ways that reminds me of Irvine versus a Barrichello or a Johnny. You know, uh, Perez or Irvine have gone to a big team where they've recognized our job isn't to be world champion. <laughs> our job is there to support the guy who's going to be world champion. And guess what? If we play the politics right and if we play the, the role right and maintain the relationships and play the team game, on certain days, we'll get to win some races um, and we could have a long career driving for one of the best teams in Formula One, earning a lot of money by any normal standards of life. And, and that's actually quite a good career. It's a much better career than 99% of racing drivers on this planet, let alone people. Whereas, you know, you get the impression that people like Rubens or people like Johnny just got frustrated with the situation because their expectations were they were going to be fighting to be at least equal number one. Um, you get a little bit of that with Bottas, don't you? You know, they, he still has this thing that I'm there to be equal number one. And, and therefore, they lead a more frustrating existence because the reality is that they're not <laughs> an equal number one, whereas... Uh, a Checo or an Irvine or a DC even, you know, towards his, the end of his Mika days, they were happier. So Berger got Herbert's seat and he said uh, he ended up having to decide between Benetton and McLaren once he realised he was thinking too much about teammates and not enough about results when considering if he should sign that Ferrari deal. And he said Benetton uh, won out for him over McLaren based on sporti sporting and technical expectations not whoever my teammate would be or how much money I could get. Also in August, so the dominoes are starting to fall now. Also in August, uh, Williams announced its 1996 lineup would be Damon Hill and Jacques Villeneuve. And to prove just how far apart Williams and Schumacher were on salary expectations, it was reported that Williams were paying Hill $6 million and Villeneuve $4 million. So while Schumacher was getting $25 million from Ferrari, Williams had both of its seats covered for just 10 million and Frank had managed to get Villeneuve to take a 2 million pay cut from the IndyCar contract he had on the other side of the Atlantic. So perhaps unsurprisingly, Damon Hill said negotiating with Frank Williams was like pulling teeth. But Ferrari still needed to find a teammate to Schumacher and at its home race at Monza, outgoing Williams driver David Coulthard was linked to the seat. Coulthard was under option to McLaren for 1996 but any progression on that deal seemed to be getting held up by Alain Prost evaluating a comeback around this time 
which we discussed in our Nürburgring 95 episode in the last series. DC hasn't talked about this very often, but he did um, give a rare mention of it in an interview in 2020, where he said the contract that was offered effectively made me on paper number two to Michael. I've no doubt that Michael was the stronger driver of the two of us because I recognise he was a better overall package than I was. But at that stage of my career, I couldn't accept signing a number two contract. And that's why I decided to sign at McLaren. And I think that was the right decision for my career. Matt, would you agree with that? Did DC do the right thing here, dodging that role at this time? Yes, yeah, completely. He was he was in fantastic form in that point in 1995, around the time he got dumped by Williams with that string of poles and looking faster than Hill a lot of the time. The last thing his momentum needed was to go up against Schumacher in what turned out to be a rubbish Ferrari and with a ton of politics and Schumacher with unquestioned number one status. Uh, going to a, a relatively average McLaren with a very quick but unpolitical hack and then was definitely the better option for a man who was probably unlikely to be world champion eventually anyway. Rubens Barrichello was another driver who spoke to Ferrari. We know Rubens would go there in 2000, but in 95 he said, whoever beats Schumacher will become a hero, but if you look at the money they are paying him, they're going to have to give him all the attention. As we know, Barrichello's Jordan teammate Eddie Irvine got the drive, and if you want to hear the extraordinary story of how Eddie Jordan sold Irvine to Ferrari, check out that Nürburgring 95 episode. It's, it's ridiculous, and part of it involves a hungover Irvine sitting on a bench feeding the ducks while Eddie Jordan negotiates his release. One thing we didn't touch on in that episode, though, was Schumacher's reaction to Irvine joining. He said he was surprised when the team first mentioned the idea to him, but he added, then I thought about it and it's actually not so dumb. I think he's a very good choice. You know where you are with him. You know what he thinks. I've had teammates who would smile to your face and when you are away, they are different. I don't think he is like that. So I look forward to a clear situation and a good relationship. Nicky Lauda was in and out of a Ferrari advisory role around this time. And he said, Signing Irvine was a good decision, but he caveated that by saying it was a good choice in the circumstances they put themselves in by leaving it so late. But Matt, when you realise how many drivers had turned the seat down by that point, did Ferrari's search eventually become a case of just finding someone who wouldn't say no? To an extent. I mean, I haven't actually triple checked it, but I'm sure in the week they signed Irvine, they were about to do a test with Nicola Larini, Gianni Morbidelli, maybe even Fizzy Keller was on the list for that test as well. And it had felt like a point of everyone's turned us down. Going Italian might be popular, hadn't it? <laughs> and just fill the seat any way they could. Um, yeah, I, I think obviously most of the grid was realizing being Schumacher's teammate is not going to be a particularly enjoyable task. Massive fair play to Irvine for being as pragmatic as he was, and not like Karun said about the Perez example, going, "I can make I can make this work for me," and being very practical and actually relatively ego free in that decision. The feeling was that Irvine was the right type of driver to accept number two status to Schumacher, but Eddie wrote a book at the end of his final Ferrari season in 1999, and in there he admitted that he'd underestimated just how much of a number two he was going to be. Irvine said, the first year was a nightmare for me. I didn't realise quite how geared the whole thing was towards Schumacher. It seemed that every department was going to be structured towards him, not only in racing, but even down to hotel rooms and cars. To be honest, I hadn't been hot for the Ferrari drive at the end of 95. I'd been hot for Williams, but Ferrari was the way to get out of Jordan. Once I was there, I knew I had to get on with it and make it work. There was no point trying to change things or stamping my feet. I just needed to find a bit of space for myself in the Schumacher machine 
and chalk up some good results. One story Irvine tells within all that is that Schumacher's road car was fitted with an automatic pass for the toll roads in Italy, whereas Irvine's wasn't. So Eddie had to stop at the toll booths each time and hand over cash to keep using the uh, the autostradas in Italy. Karun, do you think, hearing some of that, do you think Ferrari perhaps went too far with how they made the number one, number two divide when Schumacher first came in? Well, I mean, they probably went too far all the way through, didn't they? Just, let's think about Austria 2002. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and this is where Jean Todd had a very, very clear view of what he wanted to achieve, which was back the guy who's going to deliver us the world championship. So in some sense, you can't fault him for that. Um, and, and, you know, in the same ways that you think back to Senna back in 1986 or Michael a, a decade later in 1986, you know, they both those great drivers didn't believe that their respective teams, Lotus or Ferrari, um, were capable of running two equal number ones. And therefore, they did everything they could and needed to do to put themselves in a position of strength. And that's what the greats do. They're ruthless. They're ruthless, not just in the car, but outside the car in, in every bit of the deal. And, um, you know, Michael knew that if he could get the entire Ferrari machine working for him, and sometimes even the teammate, you know, they would often get Eddie to be testing things to put on Michael's car the next race. So they'll say, oh, we haven't got enough bits for two cars, but you can test it. We'll put on Michael's car. And, but that's what they had to do, wasn't it? And, and Michael was the one who delivered, though, when it came to crunch time on, on track on the Saturdays and Sundays, Michael was the one who delivered. The thing is, though, I totally understand the elements of sometimes you move over for your teammates. Sometimes if we're racing new parts in, the title hope driver gets them first. I, I totally get a number one, number two system. But stuff like you don't get the free the free toll road toll roads pass or back at Benetton, you, I can see your data. You must not look at mine. Stuff like that is really psychologically punishing in a way that a, a modern number, number one, number two situation with a kind of greater understanding of psychology and the potential for social media rage over it, just it just wouldn't happen now. Some of that was almost was almost punitive in how in how much it kind of reinforced the hierarchy. When ultimately Schumacher did want these teammates to sometimes hold back a rival for him and, and do some donkey work. Yeah, just g g give him a few perks as well, at least. Let's skip forward now to when Schumacher sat in a Ferrari for the first time. His first seat fitting before he would drive the 95 car fitted with the new V10 engine for 96. This was the start of tension with Ferrari's designer, John Barnard. Barnard says in his book that Schumacher asked for the steering wheel to be moved six millimetres towards him. Ferrari apparently only had five or seven millimetre spacers. And Barnard said one, one or the other would be good enough for a first test. But he then found out management ordered an engineer to work through the night, producing a six millimetre spacer. That created a theme of tension that carried on through winter testing. Barnard wrote, I respected his talent, but I found him incredibly hard to work with. I had years of experience over him, but it didn't stop him from questioning everything I did. There was no point in standing there and arguing with him. If there was something Schumacher didn't like, he would go to Todd, tell him that he didn't like it and would get it changed. In effect, we were all working for Schumacher. I didn't particularly go for that. Karun, was uh, John Barnard and Michael Schumacher, was that a partnership that was always going to be a clash of personalities? 
Well, it seems like it. Um, you know, obviously, John had gone back to Ferrari, hadn't he? After his, his few years at Benetton, he'd gone back to Ferrari as the head honcho. Um, and, you know, he was well ensconced in the system, as well ensconced as he could be. You know, when you read his book, it's a fascinating book, by the way. I, I strongly recommend it to anybody. And um, I think it's it's a brilliant book. Um, but it's quite clear that there's the, the political undercurrents at Ferrari were were huge at that time. And he was doing his best to, to you know, make sure that he was um, still on top from a technical standpoint. Uh, clearly, for someone who was, you know, there as the incumbent, to then have someone like Michael um, with all of this momentum and all of this confidence, this self-confidence and this um, belief from the entire Ferrari system in Michael to come in up there, there could only ever be one person who came out on top in that thing. And that's, um, it, it's a great shame because, you know, Barnard was uh, one of the great designers in Formula One history. Uh, if you look at his record, it's, it's fantastic across what he did in his career. Um, but clearly, Michael had a relationship with Ross and Rory and people that he'd worked with at Benetton. Um, and... You know, you do get the feeling that he arrived at Ferrari at the back of his mind thinking, I, I need to get my people here quickly uh, and build this team with the people who know me and the way I drive a car and I like a car. You know, I think Barnard talks about in that book, doesn't he, that he, he had this fundamental philosophy that there's a car that's designed with a bit of entry understeer in it and that stabilizes the car on the way in. And then, you know, you get on the power and it, you get the traction on the way out. Whereas Michael from day one didn't like the car that way. He wanted a car that was nervous on the rear and he steered the car on the brakes with the rear of the car moving around. Uh, and so straight away, straight off the bat, they both differed in the way they fundamentally believe the car should be set up. And when you've paid 20 plus million for this guy to come in, you got to, you, you know, you've, that's a clear statement, isn't it? You've put all your eggs in his basket and therefore, you're just going to give him all the tools he wants to to do the job that he wants. And unfortunately for John, he was never going to win that 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 battle. I think, and probably never be the sort of man who would settle for uh, playing second fiddle in the hierarchy as well. But as we touched on earlier, after Schumacher tested the '95 car, uh, he told both Barnard and Ross Braun that he felt he could have won the championship. He would have found winning the championship in the Ferrari easier than it was in the Benetton. And he said specifically with the, the V12 engine as well. And uh, Michael said to Ross, he couldn't understand how Ferrari hadn't won the championship. Irvine was impressed too, calling the 95 car stunning after driving it for the first time. So Matt, without retreading our Lacey steps too much here, did Ferrari underachieve with that 95 car? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's offensive that a car that pretty only won one race, really, isn't it? But <laughs> it, it's not just the drivers going to sleep at times. It, it wasn't necessarily reliable. It's in key moments as well. Monza should have been a, a, a one-two. Um, that, was, that wasn't exactly reliability with the camera flying off the car. Um, Suzuka could have been a win as well with how well Alessi was going. If you add in reliability problems, weird bad luck, and drivers going off the pace, probably half a dozen wins were doable. Enough about the 95 car then, let's get to the 96 car, which ended up being delayed by a month from its original launch date of January the 15th. 
It was called a 310, reflecting the three litre V10 engine, but its internal code name, uh, perhaps more familiar to fans of Ferraris of this era, was the 647. When the car was finally revealed on February the 15th, it made quite an impression. The nose was a kind of high nose, low nose hybrid with one central point connecting it to the front wing. The new raised cockpit sides were really high, making the car look a bit like an armchair. And the side pods featured an aggressive undercut that was compared to the disastrous twin floor design from 1992. Irvine said in his Legends of F1 interview with Sky Sports that his first reaction when he saw the car was to say to Schumacher, that thing looks worryingly different to everyone else's car. And he said he went on to say it was a piece of junk. Barnard admitted in his book that by, the, by this point, he was delegating more to his aero team in the UK, and he approved the designs they came up with based on what they were seeing in the wind tunnel. He said the 1996 car never drove with quite the same ease and balance as the 95 car. It never realised its potential. It was never the step forward that it should have been, never the improvement that I wanted. I should have dumped everything else, gone down to the tunnel and got involved. I was questioning them, but I was trusting their figures. So I'm going to ask both of you this question and we'll come to Matt first. What did you think when you saw this 96 car for the first time? It's kind of like a ooh noise. It just <laughs> was horrible. It just looked so, so big apart from anything else and just misshapen that the cockpit side rule change for that year with the higher sides for increased safety we'd seen jordan and williams find a loophole for a much lower solution and it was like ferrari had read the rules upside down and gone for the biggest one it possibly could the whole thing was just bulbous and and just looked wrong i didn't think they could make it uglier then that high nose arrived in canada wasn't it and he just <laughs> went oh god um <laughs> yeah it wasn't the prettiest car but I tell you what, it, it, even, I think it was even a couple of weeks ago, I, I looked up Michael's qualifying laps from San Marino and Monte Carlo. And when you you watch it, and it's kind of like watching Senna Brands Hatch in 86, that is a driver who is ringing every thousandth out of that car. Um, it is amazing, you know. Honestly, I, I would implore anyone who hasn't seen it to watch it. And you don't even have to watch the onboard. You can watch the outside, you know, the, the lap that follows, follows him around. Um, yeah, it was extraordinary what he did in that car. Absolutely extraordinary. So we know the car's ugly. Uh, as Karim said, it did get worse. But let's talk about Ferrari's expectations because all winter they'd been saying that a handful of wins would be nice, and that but that was the most they could hope for. At the launch, Luca de Montezemolo said he would be happy if the team won three races, but he stressed that Ferrari was coming from a very long road and that Williams was the team to beat. Schumacher said a couple of wins would be fantastic, but he said reliability was the priority because Ferrari's retired 13 times in 1995. And he added, in three months, we cannot solve all the problems at Ferrari. We must go in small steps. Barnard said Ferrari was reaching the payoff period after three years of rebuilding, but he wasn't sure if it would really come good in 96 or 97. Outside of Ferrari, Frank Williams said he didn't believe that stuff Schumacher's been coming out with about uh, Ferrari not being a title threat. And Schumacher's old boss, Briatore, said Ferrari was the team to beat because if a team decides to take a driver like Schumacher, it is ready to win the world championship. You don't take a guy like him to win two races. It's a waste of talent and a waste of money. I'm going to ask you both this, uh, this question as well. Karun, you can go first. 
what do you what were your expectations from the outside for Ferrari in Schumacher's first year? Was it possible, as Briatore said, that it would be a plug-in world championship challenge, or were they right to be more realistic and look for a handful of victories? I think they were it was the latter. Um, you know, Ferrari yeah, the car in 94 and 95 have been good enough to win races, but it takes much more than just a fast car to win a world championship. You know, uh, it, it needs an entire team. It needs a strong operational team. It needs a strong development team, a strong test team, um, uh, you know. And so, yeah, I think, you know, clearly all the noises they made, Michael and the team, was this is the first of the big building blocks we're doing towards a bigger, brighter future. And they were right. You know, they, they said they needed two or three years. Um, and frankly, they were contenders in 97 straight away, weren't they? So um, in the second year of that program. So um, I think, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, Flavio was probably a bit bitter about the fact that he'd lost his golden goose, the one that he felt that he had turned into this this amazing you know, superstar talent that he nurtured. And, and I think he was probably a bit bitter about the fact Michael had left. I didn't think it was going to be a, a nailed on title title threat from the start, but I did think at the time, like it's not, the opposition was coming back down towards it as well. Uh, I thought Alessi and Berger are uh, a bit more sketchy. They might need time to settle in at Benetton. Hill had been operating at quite a low level, second half of 95 until Adelaide. And Villeneuve was coming in as an F1 rookie. It was like, actually... Plug, for, plug Schumacher into what Ferrari was doing in mid-95, pulled those other two teams down a bit for those reasons, and this this might be quite a wide-open, three-way, unpredictable fight, which is the sort of thing you think when you're a really optimistic 15-year-old who's got no idea how F1 really works. <laughs> well, Schumacher's reliability concerns looked well-founded when a new car could barely run at Fiorano due to gearbox problems. In the end, Ferrari was forced to leave the new car behind and take the V10 version of its 95 car to a big pre-season test at Estoril. The new car finally went to Estoril at the end of the month after a trouble-free run at Fiorano for Irvine. Schumacher had to stop after one installation lap with the new car at that test due to an electrical problem, then a fuel pump failure after another three laps. It did start to run more smoothly after that, although Irvine suffered a gearbox failure in a test at Fiorano at the same time. Schumacher ended his Estoril test with the 10th fastest time, two places down on what he'd managed with the 95 car, and he said it was a relief to get some running in and that the car had potential, but it would be three to four races before Ferrari was competitive. That was the last serious running before the cars went to Australia for the first race, and Irvine later admitted that Ferrari ended pre-season expecting to be behind Williams, Benetton, Jordan and McLaren. So Matt, Rubbish looking car, launch late, unreliable. Did you think Ferrari were heading to Australia in trouble? Completely. It, it looked like a, a laughable level of crisis because testing had gone that badly. All, all the noises were so, were so negative about reliability particularly. And also, it's interesting, Irvine mentioning Jordan and McLaren. I think at that point, Jordan in particular had quite a good winter. And you could, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago about thinking other teams might come down towards Ferrari. Instead, in this sort of shambolic state Ferrari ended up in, other teams from behind it were now set to jump it. So yeah, it it looked like neither car would be anywhere near the front of the grid or, or have any hope of finishing the race. Gary Anderson's ears have pricked up somewhere. We're talking about Jordan. Uh, but let's talk about engines. After all, this is bring back V10s. And it was only for 1996 that Ferrari finally put a V10 in its car's 
Barnard had been pushing for this since coming back to Ferrari in 1993. He tried to get Ferrari to base an engine around Brian Hart's new V10, which was rejected, and he then set a team of ex-Cosworth engineers to work on a V8, which he said didn't go anywhere for many reasons. But in 1996, he said since then, many things have changed at Ferrari, so by the time we were ready to look seriously at another engine, the best overall compromise was a 10-cylinder. He added, you always take a risk when you try something completely new. There's never enough time to do a new engine. You will have to go through the development process and the unreliability which it takes to get it right. It's impossible to get the timing right. Somewhere along the line, there is going to be pain when you change, and that's what we have to put up with. Karun, obviously we love our V10s here, but who doesn't love a V12? Were you sad to see and to perhaps hear the end of V12s when Ferrari made that switch? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it, even today you get the odd demo of a Ferrari V12, and it's just stunning. It is. It, it's just absolutely stunning. I quite liked the randomness as well that we had in that sort of early nineties where. You had the V12s versus the V10s versus the V8s. You know, Honda came with the V12 as well towards the end of their time in F1 in that era. Um, I quite like that mix that you had. You know, you had the the Tyrrells and the Benettons of the V8s, um, which sounded completely different. And you don't get that anymore. And frankly, you didn't get that in the V10 era when they were all the same as well, you know, when it all got more regulated. So, yeah, no, I, I did miss the, having the V12s on track. Yeah, they, they still sound incredible. They always will. And yeah, like I say, the shows bring back V10s, but you've got to love a V12 as well. So I think we should call it bring back V10s and more. <laughs> bring back V10s and anything that raced against the V10 because we love them all. <laughs> well, no, anything above it because not quite so as V8. But yeah, v, I like the idea of V10s plus. <laughs> V10s is the minimum entry requirement. Yeah, minimum entry requirement. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Let's finish up by looking at how the first race went for Schumacher and Ferrari. Ferrari was pleasantly surprised to lock out the second row behind the dominant Williams cars with a uh, Canadian debutant on pole position, which we'll talk about another time. But the bigger surprise was that Irvine was ahead of Schumacher. This was because Schumacher had had to use his spare car for qualifying and had a gurney flap fall off his wing. And in the race, he was quickly ahead of Irvine. And Schumacher kept up with the Williams drivers in the first stint until it became clear that was because he was two-stopping and the Williamses were one-stopping, so he had less fuel on board. He eventually retired from the race with brake problems, but Irvine kept his nose clean to pick up third place first time out. Schumacher reckoned Williams was at least half a second faster than Ferrari, but he was surprised to be best of the rest and said that showed a big step already. And Irvine joked that now he was ahead of Schumacher in the championship, maybe they'd have to switch roles. So let's finish up then, just reflecting on that, that first weekend. We've done the entire journey up to this point. They get to Australia. Karun, how would you sum up that first weekend? Yes, he didn't finish, but the Ferraris were on the second row. Irvine got a podium. It obviously wasn't a clear marker of what was to come in the early 2000s, but Considering what we'd gone through over the winter, was it a good start? Yeah, I think so. And, and actually, you know, in the, in the sort of build-up to this podcast, I was, I was looking back at the 96 season, and actually, they only had four retirements, or Michael only had four DNFs, um, which were reliability, which I say only in, in modern terms, that's huge. 
But actually, given what we've talked about and the expectations going into the season, that's not that bad, is it? You know, admittedly, Canada was off the line and France was in before the start of the race. But still, you know, they they won three races and they limped over the line in Imola to get a podium there, but they got there. <laughs> um, so actually, it, it wasn't that bad from a reliability standpoint. And, and competitiveness, you know... They, they came out the blocks ahead of Benetton, didn't they? That, that was the big thing of that weekend for me. Straight away, they'd smash Benetton. And then when you look at the result, uh, Irvine finished a minute behind the Williams. But look back at second half of 95. Every completely dry race that a Ferrari finished, they were either lapped or they were well over a minute, about one minute 30-ish behind the winner at the, at the end. So straight away, after a really rubbish winter, with the quicker driver retiring, Ferrari's back within a minute of Williams. And yeah, and clear second best. I, I thought at the time that actually forget the bad winter, this bodes really, really well. If anything, after Melbourne, it looked like success would come a lot sooner than 2000. Yeah, and as we know, all that talk of spending the first year preparing for a title shot in 97 turned out to be pretty accurate, even if they didn't quite go over the line and would then have to wait quite a bit longer for various reasons in 98 and then, of course, 99 when Schumacher broke his leg. But that elusive first title did come finally in 2000, and then Ferrari were pretty unstoppable. But that's it for how Schumacher ended up moving to Ferrari. I'm sure we'll look back at some more stories from that year uh, in future episodes, and it sounds like Karun's already done the research for those, so we'll make sure he comes back. And we will, of course, look at the famous first win in the rain at the Spanish Grand Prix. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. You can email BringBackV10s at therace.com or by leaving us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. Next time, we are jumping firmly into the era of Schumacher and Ferrari dominance and we'll be revisiting the race where he sealed what was then a record-equaling fifth world title in 2002 when he grabbed victory from Kimi Raikkonen in the closing stages of the French Grand Prix.